0: Please turn to Daniel chapter 11. I'm not going to read this whole chapter to you. Let me just give you an introduction and a recap that will be very helpful for this chapter that we're going to dip into this evening. In Daniel chapter 10, it was seen that after three weeks of fasting and mourning, um, Daniel did the fasting and mourning, he was sa- he was sat by the river Hidikil, which is the Tigris, the river Tigris, he looked up and he saw a certain heavenly man. In other words, he saw an angel, or perhaps he even saw the pre-incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, Daniel lost his strength and he fell into a deep sleep. But then an angel, quite possibly Gabriel, touched him and raised him up on his hands and his knees and the angel spoke to him. Based on what the angel said, we considered the fact that there are good angels such as Gabriel and also the archangel Michael. They're sent by God into the world for various um, reasons. God sends them as his ministering spirits. But also there are evil angels, evil spirits or demons. I say that because the prince of this world and his legions of evil spirits are busy in the world seeking to frustrate God's purposes. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, or withstand the devil. For we wrestle not with against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world the spiritual wickedness in high places that the Apostle Paul spoke of, that all refers to demonic forces in this world. Turning our attention this morning to Daniel chapter 11, the angel was still speaking to Daniel and he told him about various things that would surely happen right up until the end of the world, And I would say that must surely be of interest to serious-minded people. Let me just, maybe you need to give yourself a pinch. What we've got in this chapter, as indeed previous chapters, is revelation of things that must still happen, right up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. That I think that's amazing. I don't know about you. That is That has got to be worth a consideration. And perhaps you'll understand why chapter 11 is a big chapter. And as I say, I don't propose to read read the whole chapter to you today. But I would certainly encourage you to read it and to study it for yourself. Because, again, you're going to be reading about things that must surely happen. They will happen. You don't even know what's going to happen in your life in an hour's time. But we're being told here the things that will happen. I don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. As a Christian, I'll be honest with you, I I really do pray that he will come soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's my prayer. But we don't know when he will come. But we're told here the things that must surely happen. And that's, that's tremendous. Chapter 11 is a long one, so study it for yourself. A sizable portion of chapter 11 is about various conflicts that are not just here in, in, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, but also well documented in the history books. However, I don't intend to bring you a detailed history lesson. I'm not the one to do that. I, I never did listen in history at school. I wish I did. There's a lot of things I wish I'd done when I was at school, uh, um, but anyway, that's by and by. What I shall endeavour to do this morning is give you a brief overview of the events in chapter 11, and then we'll look at some applications for us. I'll read a few of these verses to you. Uh, Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, <coughs> through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. So we got in those three verses. There we got the kings of Persia and Greece. um, Persia and also there's mention of Grecia there, Greece. So verses one and two there, they mention the dominant kingdom at the time, and that, that that the angel spoke to Daniel. The dominant kingdom at the time was the Medo Persian Empire. Then verse three. And let's have a look at verse four as well. And when he shall stand up, that's the, the king from Grecia, when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Posterity is, so that's his descendants. His kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided not to his descendants, to his children. Verses three and (coughs) verse three rather marks the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire and the rise of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. However, already in the very next verse in verse four, we can see Alexander's highly successful rule coming to an abrupt end with his sudden death while he was still young. He had no heir, he had no successor. Consequently, what followed and is recorded in verse 4 is that the Greek empire was divided up between others. We see that right towards the end of verse 4. Even for others, it was divided up between others towards the four winds of heaven after the death of Alexander the Great. Let's have a look at verses 5 and 6. And the king of the south (coughs) shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion, his dominion shall be a great dominion, and in the end of years they shall join themselves together for the king's daughter of the south, Shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up. And they shall, uh, uh, and they, sh- they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengtheneth her in these times. Much of chapter 11 is about, about those others that we're introduced to in, in verse 4 there, and those others being at war with one another. They are referred to as the king of the south, which apparently is Egypt, and the king of the north, which apparently is Syria. Much of chapter 11 is about those two others being at war with one another. They are referred to as the king of the south, the king of the north. What is the big deal though? Why is so much, um, so many verses in the Bible being devoted to wars between the king of the south, the king of the north, those two kingdoms? In other words, Egypt and Syria. Well, if you know your geography, you might know who was, and come to think of it, who still is, sandwiched between Egypt in the south and Syria in the north. The Jews. The Jews. When we looked at chapter 8, we saw something of how the Jews suffered under the tyranny of one of the kings of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire, Here in chapter 11, we are going to be reintroduced to him, to Antiochus Epiphanes. You may recall from chapter 8 that a ram with two horns, which represented the Medes and the Persians, was cast down to the ground by a goat with one prominent, one notable horn. That one horn would have been Alexander the Great of the Greek Empire. But then according to chapter 8, the notable horn was broken and four other notable horns rose up and took its place. The broken horn referred to the death of Alexander the Great and according to the Bible commentator John Gill, the four winds of heaven that we see referred to in chapter 11 in verse (coughs) 4 They seem to refer to the four horns that sprung up uh, in the place of the horn in Daniel chapter 8. Can you see the the, 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 the similarities there? Let's just go through it very quickly again. Chapter 8, there's a, a, a goat with one horn. That horn is said to represent Alexander the Great. It's broken. That's his death at a young age, believed to be from a fever. We don't really know. Four horns take its place, the four winds of heaven that we're seeing here in uh, chapter 11 and verse 4. These are the others also spoken of in verse 4 of chapter 11. Coming back to Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8, we're told that he was a master in the art of persuading and deceiving men. It was by deceit and cunning that he obtained the kingdom from his nephew and it was by the art of persuasion that he seduced many of the Jews to relinquish their religion and to embrace paganism. Similarly, here in chapter 11, we're told in verse 23 that he shall work deceitfully and in verse 32, he shall corrupt by flatteries the Jewish apostates. If you want to just have a look at those two verses. Verse 23, And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. And the other one was verse 32. (coughs) And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries By the people, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. You've got that deceit and the flatteries. Again, doesn't it, doesn't it make, doesn't it remind you of uh, the prince of this world, uh, a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. (coughs) The cunning and the deception are strategies that the devil employs. That can be seen in the case of the Garden of Eden, I've already mentioned that. The serpent, who was more subtle than any beast, deceived the woman. We also saw in chapter (coughs) 8 how Antiochus desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by stealing its treasures, how he set up an altar to the Greek god Zeus and how he sacrificed pigs on the altar here in chapter 11 verse 31 the abomination probably refers to idols that he placed in the temple. When we get to verse 36 in chapter 11 we move on in time from the kings of the north and the south and it would seem that a new world power is now in place. Let's have a look at verse 36 and the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvellous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation shall be accomplished, for that hit is determined shall be done. It would appear that Daniel's vision of the cruel and deceitful Antiochus Epiphanes has seamlessly merged into a vision of a final earthly leader. One who comes forth from what was the Roman Empire. Again, we, we know from the, the, the history books, we know from the Bible. We know from the Bible very clearly that the Roman Empire came after the Greek Empire. Interestingly, in chapter 8 and verse 9, Antiochus was referred to as a little horn horn. And in chapter 7, verse 8, this final leader who proceeds from the Roman Empire is also referred to as a little horn. And what we're now being told about this this final little horn in chapter 11 and verse 36 is that he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvellous things against the god of gods. That's a fitting description of the man of sin, the son of perdition, spoken of by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the the Thessalonians. Paul described the man of sin as one, one whose coming is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. That's as much as I'm actually going to say on this chapter. You'd have to read it for yourself, really. But there is, even with what I've said, there's a lot of application for us. Much of what we're presented with in chapter 11 has already been considered piece by piece and probably in greater detail in the preceding chapters. Details such as the rise and fall of the Medes and the Persians, I think that's become very clear by now. Followed by the rise of the Greeks under the rule of Alexander the Great. Again, that's clear by now. Then Alexander's sudden death and the empires that the Greek empire was carved up into. Most notorious of them was Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire, referred to as the King of the North in chapter 11 and verse 6. He was particularly blasphemous against God and he was cruel, he was barbarous towards the true worshippers of God. And finally, we're introduced to the man of sin, the son of perdition, whom Antiochus Epiphanes, and for that matter, all who have ever opposed God and oppressed the people of God throughout history are types and forerunners. They all tick the boxes and they all point towards this final um, little horn that we see in chapter 11. There are Christians whose understanding of the end times is such that they believe that before the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, this world will be Christianized, that it will be brought under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. I simply do not see that to be the case and I would suggest that Christians who think that this world will be Christianised should take a good look at the last six chapters of the book of Daniel. During this final era that we're living, right, uh, living in right now up until Jesus comes again in judgement at the end of the age there will, be, there will continue to be Awful days for Christians, terrible days for Christians in a world in which the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. The days will be terrible. Jesus tells us uh, in the Gospels, I think in Matthew chapter 24, that these days will be cut short for the sake of the elect. Things will get so bad. I honestly believe the streets will be red with blood as indeed they are in many parts of the world. And if the streets aren't red with blood, you can bet your boots that the abortion clinics that are dotted all over the world are red with blood. As the world and its leaders rebel against God, they fulfil the lust of the prince of this world, the devil Whom the Lord Jesus Christ has described as a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. Think about it. No names mentioned. I won't, I'll just call him Dr. Death for now. Dr. Death will do. Maybe one or two of you (coughs) will know who I'm talking about. Trained for five, six years or whatever it is to save lives. He's become a politician on this island. He's already brought in one law that makes it easier for 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 women to kill their unborn babies, and now he's doing everything to bring in another law that um, makes that that legalizes assisted dying. People wanting to end their lives, put it on the statute books. Where does it all end? You've got to really think to yourself, because I don't know how many times I hear people say, and they truly believe that our leaders have our best interests at heart. They really don't. They do the lust of their father, the devil. When they enact laws that are so clearly against God's laws, you have to draw that conclusion that they are doing the lust of their father, the devil. It sounds extreme for me, but I don't know what other conclusion you can draw. They are not enacting godly laws. Laws that encourage us in some way to love God with all our being and to love our neighbours as our, our as ourselves. Even so, think about it. When history is predicted by angels and then history unfolds precisely in accordance with those predictions that we see, things that uh, 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 that Gabriel, the angel Gabriel and perhaps perhaps other uh, angels have said will happen and then lo and behold these things happen, what does that draw you to conclude? What do you think? When we see it in the Bible, angels saying this is going to happen, that's going to happen, what does that tell you? Does it not tell you that God is in control? The likes of Alexander the Great, he's not in control, he's dead. He died at a young age, just when he was so successful in his military exploits. He died. His time was up, finished. The devil? What about the devil? Is he in control? The one who is the prince of this world. And the Apostle Paul even calls him the god of this world. Is he in control of things? Well, according to Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, by his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil. He's not in control either although it may seem like it at times, he is not in control. What about those angels who bring all these predictions to us in the Bible? Are they in control? No! I've already said they're God's ministering spirits. God, the maker of heaven and earth, he is in full control. Full control of everything. For example, Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, who was one of the kings of the Jews, said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? And in the book of Proverbs it's written, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it, whithersoever he will. All those wicked kings and and rulers of the earth that take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, God has them in his hand. And he turns them and takes them wherever he wants to. And they fulfil his purpose. Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. The horrors of chapter 11 come with assurances that history is in God's hands. Look at verse 27. I know we just dipped into this, but um, look at verse 27 here. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief. And they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Note the time appointed. What is the time appointed there? The end shall be at the time appointed. Or verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come towards the south. But it shall not be as the former or as the latter. We've got the time appointed again. Verse 35. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time at the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. The time appointed again. And verse 36, where first of all we read about the king doing according to his will, but then at the end of the verse it is written that that is determined shall be done. Look at verse 36. And the king shall do according to to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. Sounds a bit like the Pope to me. Uh, What's the title given to the Pope there? Holy Father. That's his title, isn't it? Holy Father. Hang on a minute, someone else is called Holy Father in the Bible. Oh yes, God. God. That's it. Jesus addressed his Father as Holy Father in John chapter 17 remember that, Holy Father is God, it's not the Pope of Rome. And there are many others who exalt themselves. Uh, Where am I with this now? I'll read it again, I've forgotten where I am. Verse 36, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself, and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvellous things against the God of gods. Marvellous doesn't mean nice things, at all he's speaking against God and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done so for now God is allowing this to happen but not forever forever God is the one who determines what will happen. Also, everything is fixed to a time appointed by God and it most certainly will come to pass as God has decreed. When it comes to God's own people, Christians in other words, whom the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and laid down his life for at the cross, one may well ask why it is that God permits them to suffer such terrible persecution. There are Christians who are suffering terribly in this world. Even being martyred, tortured and martyred because they are, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In answer to that I can do no better than quote one of the Bible commentators who said God's plants do not thrive in greenhouses but in wind Hail, snow and burning heat. That's what he said, the commentator. The fact of the matter is that it is in times of persecution that the church thrives. It is then that whilst there are those who fall away, inevitably there will be those who disappear and you never see them again when the persecution comes. The truly saved those who are really, really trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin, they will grow stronger in their faith by the grace of God and they will be focused upon the certain hope that one day they will be with their great God and saviour, Jesus Christ and they, they will live in the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and where there shall be no more tears, no more sorrow and... No more sin. How wonderful is that? No more sin. In the meantime, they and the church as a whole will proclaim the gospel of Christ with a greater urgency in times of persecution. As the persecution increases, so will that urgency to reach people with the good news of Jesus. And by the grace of God, there will be those who will be saved and added to the church daily until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. But also, and most crucially, God's will was carried out at his appointed time when men laid their wicked hands upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they crucified him. This is what the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through to 24 to Jews who had assembled from all different places they'd all come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost very soon after Jesus had gone back to heavenly glory after finishing his work of redemption. Peter said to these people ye men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God God delivered his son the Lord Jesus Christ to these men who nailed him to a cross and lifted him up to die and it says it here ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God have raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. As a result of God's sovereign will being carried out over 2,000 years ago at the cross, men, women, boys and girls are still being added to the church each and every day. They are people who have come to realise that as well as there being much evil in the world, wicked leaders, wicked people everywhere, people wanting to do terrible things, they also realise that they too have hearts that are deceitful and desperately wicked. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died at the cross. He did so as their substitute sin bearer. You as a Christian in here, you know only too well that Jesus, when he laid down his life at the cross, it was, never mind anyone else, it was because of your sins. He laid down his life with your name, graven on his hands, your sins laid upon him. What you know as a Christian is that Jesus was wounded for your transgressions he was bruised for your iniquities the punishment of your peace was upon him with his stripes that he received on his back when he was scourged with his stripes you are healed. It's your testimony that though you used to be an enemy of God you, you now have peace with God by the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through his blood. And now you have a hope that reaches up above and beyond all the present tribulations, all the present miseries of this world and it reaches up to heaven. Is there someone in here who does not have that hope? Who does not have a hope that goes beyond the here and now? Maybe a hope that tomorrow will be a nice day, sunshine perhaps. I don't know. Well, what you would need to do is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and be at peace with your maker, almighty God. Amen.